Good morning. Once again, I'm thrilled to be here with you and to continue sharing something that is, uh, I think, not only important to me, but I think is important to all of us. September is National Recovery Month. And one of the things that we want to do, that, that I want to do last week and this week, is to create more awareness about what recovery is. Because it's real easy for us a lot of times to think of recovery in terms of, well, those folks, right? Those folks that need it. Those folks that have the serious problems. When in reality, the truth of the matter is, recovery is for all of us. I got a news flash for you. You're all messed up. Everybody else looks normal, right? But you know what's going on between your ears and your head and all the hurts, the habits, and the hang-ups you've been struggling with all your life. And I can say that with confidence because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, haven't we? So we know that that's true. We know that we all struggle. Some of us do it more externally and some of us do it more internally, but we all struggle. And that's what recovery is all about. Now, in church terms, we call it repentance. It's the same thing. Repentance, recovery. It's trying to make good and godly and positive changes in our life. And the struggle that that entails, that's what it's all about. And religious folks aren't exempt. If any of you listened to the news this week, you heard the announcement from Georgetown University after a year-long study about their involvement in the early 1800s in slavery. And in 1838, actually selling more than 200 slaves in order to finance some of the problems that they were having at that time in their university to keep it going. Very embarrassing now for the Jesuit movement in that area and for that university. But for them to come out publicly and do an interview, I heard an interview yesterday morning on how they wanted to make amends. They wanted to correct their errors of more than a century ago. And it's interesting how it affects all of us. And so that's what it's, what it's all about. And in the fine print down here at the bottom where it says recovery month, you can't read it, but it says that um, treatment is effective and people recover. And so we need to kind of take a look at what is our treatment plan. So recovery for life... Um, is a ministry of this church that's been in, been in uh, operation for more than nine years. And every year for the last five years or so during this month, we have an open house over next door. And so on the 25th of this month, we want to invite all of you to come and participate in that if you want to, if you're curious. And it will be immediately after this service. You can just go next door. And we do have refreshments. We have donuts and pastries and coffee and things. So if you could do us a favor and let the office know if you're planning on coming just so we can adjust accordingly, it would be greatly appreciated. But I want you to know that you're all invited to that. And we would love to share with you what we do every week. So last week, if you were here, I started a, uh, a series, I guess, last week and this week on Go and Sin No More. And we looked at the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And if you remember at the end of that sermon, I showed a couple of pictures of what that situation might have ended up looking like. And so after the men who, the accusers who were going to stone her had all left and Jesus said, I don't accuse you either. I don't condemn you either. You're forgiven. Go and sin no more. I asked the question, what would it look like? Would it look like her 
prostrate on the ground in front of Jesus and him dismissing her, go woman and be sure you don't sin anymore or something worse is going to happen to you? Or was it him kneeling and getting on her level and talking to her and saying, you can do this, I trust you, I believe in you? Or was it what I hope it was and what I think it was, a promise to walk alongside her? And if this woman, in fact, was Mary Magdalene, as many scholars believe, then it probably was the latter. And she spent time with Jesus after that on a daily basis with the ability to walk alongside him and ask him questions and talk to him and share her frustrations. And so if you're reading, if you open your Bibles to John chapter 8, those first 11 verses, we looked at that last week. And verse 12, to me, is fascinating. Changes the context because verse 12 says, Jesus spoke to the people once more. So I'm wondering, who are the people? Who are these people that Jesus is talking to? More specifically, I'm wondering, was the woman there? I think she was. If it was Mary Magdalene, I think she was in the crowd. If it was maybe later that day or the next day, I can see her hiding in the shadows, afraid that some of those men that had accused her would recognize her and bring the whole subject up again. But I can see her wanting to be in the crowd, standing in the corner, listening as Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And I've got a good imagination. So I can imagine Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. And capturing everybody's attention for different reasons. Some of them wanting to accuse him even more. But some of them like this woman. And I can imagine him almost turning to her and looking at her in the eye. When he says, if you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness anymore. You can be done with that. Because you will have the light that leads to life. You will have that in your life to walk with. And I can imagine tears coming to her eyes as she makes connections with Jesus' eyes. And the realization of that truth soaks into her soul. You can change. You don't have to live like that anymore. That doesn't have to dominate that sin doesn't have to enslave you anymore. And I think that there's five things we're going to look at this morning very quickly that are a part of any successful change plan in Christ. I mean, people change all the time, and they may not have some of these qualities. But in Christ, I think if we're going to make good and godly changes... I think these five things were a part of Mary Magdalene's life. I think, as, as a matter of fact, they're part of Peter's life and Paul's life and David's life and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and any person you see struggling with sin that goes through the process of change. And the first one is making a wholehearted commitment. You need to be wholehearted about your commitment. Now, here's the thing that I want you to understand. The battleground is the mind. It's not the circumstances. It's not the conditions. It's not the situations. It's between your ears. It's the way you perceive all of those other things that either enables you to win or lose the battle. And Christ is in a struggle to get in your head and to get in your heart and to help you reframe things that have happened to you and things that are happening happening to you and things that you may be afraid are going to happen in the future to you so the battleground is in the mind 
And change requires an open-mindedness to find a new understanding and perspective that will lead us down a different path. If you were here last week, and you remember I said in, in one point what sin is, sin is missing the mark. And it may be missing the mark by only one degree, but if you live that out over a lifetime, that's going to take you someplace other than where Jesus wants you to be. So we are constantly getting back on track. And in order to get back on track, it takes a wholehearted commitment. In Romans chapter 6, 17 and 18, it says, Thank God once you were slaves to sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to righteous living. This is like going on that diet, that serious diet, but keeping that half gallon of ice cream in the freezer. Or it's like the alcoholic wanting to give up the alcohol, but you have the half gallon of vodka in the freezer. Or it's like quitting smoking, but you still got that pack of cigarettes in the glove box. It's like having that ace in the hole. It's like having that just in case. It doesn't work that way. When they make a wholehearted, when they wholeheartedly obeyed, it was like sold out, lock, stock, and barrel. It's either you're all in or you're not. So that's what I mean by wholehearted commitment. The second thing is wholehearted commitment requires a level of humility. You've got to be humble in order to do this. God said, David said, uh, or God said through David that the sacrifice that you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and a repentant heart. The heart condition is what God works through, what he looks at. So you have to admit that you're powerless to change on your own and that it's time to let God help. Now that may seem like an oversimplification for people like you and me who've been sitting in church for multiple years, but it's not as easy as it sounds because we are physically hardwired to try to fix all this stuff on our own by working even harder, by using the resources we have available. But to give up and to give it to God, to let go and to let God have control of our lives is a major mind shift that requires humility. Jesus said it this way. He said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Walton taught us a couple of months ago on a Sunday night what meek means. It doesn't mean weak, even though it sounds like it. It means power under control, right, Walton? So this power that is under control, that is demonstrated through choices, is meekness. Well, if meekness is power under control, then I suggest that humility is ability under control. You've got incredible talents and abilities, but are they under control or are they out of control? If they're under control, whose control are they under? The obvious answer is they should be under Christ's control. If you're making a wholehearted commitment to something and you're humble about it, you've got to be trusting then. It naturally follows a humble heart looking for help. If you need help from someone else and you're going to God, you can't make those changes in thought or action until you really believe, until you're really convinced that they're good and necessary. 
Now, here's the kicker. Here's the important part. And you fully trust the one who makes the rules. When I teach something similar to this at Decision Point a lot of times, or in RFL class, or I think it probably would be the same in any of our adult classes if we were all honest, how do you feel about authority? How do you feel about somebody telling you what to do? There is a sense of rebelliousness on some level that comes up in all of us. And this idea was revolutionary to me, to trust the one who makes the rules, to trust that he has your best interest at heart. It makes it easier to do what you don't want to do or what's difficult to do because you know he's asking you to do it. And here's the verse that is incredible to me in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And it is impossible to please God without faith. And this is why. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him or follow him or obey him. He is interacting. He's involved in your life to the point to where he will reward you. All things will work together for good if you give your life to him and if you follow on that path. As this woman was struggling the next day and the day after that and the week after that and the month after that to leave that old life behind and to walk alongside Jesus and to understand and to put into practice these things, it was important for her to realize that he loved her and had her best interests at heart. Next, we've got to be obedient. Nothing you learn from God about how to move from bad to good will do you any good until you start to put it into practice, correct? If you fully obey the Lord, this is a promise that we have from Deuteronomy. If you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to keep his commands that I am giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. We have a simple phrase that we say every day. Actions speak louder than words. Actions are what makes things happen. We can talk all day long, right? We can philosophize. We can talk about how much we believe in something and how much we think it's great and wonderful and we need to do it. But until we do it, it doesn't change our lives. So the last thing, the thing that I've seen that I think is the most important is we have to be hopeful. We have to maintain hope. And it's a struggle. Anybody in here ever get discouraged? Everybody, anybody in here ever feel like giving up? So cultivating and maintaining hopefulness is part of the process. Now think about this. Change doesn't happen overnight. You don't undo the mistakes or reap the benefits of God's promises quickly. And there very well may be a reason for that. God uses time to teach and reinforce his lessons. I watched an Andy Stanley lesson one time, a video. It was on starting over, and it was kind of focused a little bit on people that maybe have gotten out of a bad relationship and are wanting to start over again, and how a lot of people seem to kind of fall into another similar relationship time after time after time. And so he was challenging them because a lot of times what we do when we get out of a bad situation is we jump into, we think the clock is ticking. 
I've only got a limited amount of time. I gotta, I gotta get back in the game. I gotta get on with the process. And he made a pretty good case for the fact that, you know, that's pretty silly. If you've got some lessons to learn about mistakes that you've made and you don't wanna make those same mistakes next time, then why don't we take the time to learn the lessons well? so that it makes sense to do something different the next time. So being hopeful is what we need to sustain the process. In Hebrews, he says, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Well, that's true, right? But it's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living or righteousness for those who are trained in this way. We just got through with the Olympics. Joshua's series, finishing well. To be an Olympic-level athlete takes a great deal of training. It's not something you can wake up one morning and accomplish by trying extra, extra, extra hard today. It takes a disciplined life of training. Well, I want to conclude today by throwing out there that that's what our Christian life, do you want to be successful in your Christian life? Do you want to find and maintain that balance in your Christian life? It takes training. It takes walking alongside Jesus every day. So here's my word of encouragement to finish this sermon, and that is you can go and sin no more. Jesus is on your side. Jesus is willing to help and empower you but he does that partially through a process that he's already given you if you just think about it for a little bit. And that process, you need to be fully committed. And after you're fully committed, then you need to trust. And you need to obey. And you need to be hopeful. And that process is not a magic formula. It's not a silver bullet, but it works. And it works well. So if there's anybody this morning that's struggling with sin, that wants a way out, that wants to find hope and peace and joy and balance in their lives with God once again, then we want to help. The shepherds are going to get up and go to the back of the auditorium. You can find one of them or you can come down and let me know. But we want to help. We really do. So let us know the best way to do that for you. So we ask you to think about that as we stand and as we sing, Ted.